Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 6, and this week we're focusing on one of the earliest known empires called the Mapungubwe and the arrival of Bartholomew Dias. As we heard last episode, Mapungubwe emerged from the increased trade between central South Africa and the east coast seaboard, including goods such as ivory, skins, and eventually gold, around 1000 AD. Unlike areas of Africa further north and northwest, the slave trade did not impact this region as much as others for a number of reasons. The main is distance, each mile further south from the Arabian, Asian and European markets and then American centers of slavery meant it was a threat to the survival of those unfortunate souls seized as slaves by intermediaries. So Mapungubwe and Great Zimbabwe were not crucial in the trade of humans over the centuries. Their power lay in goods rather than people. We heard too how by the start of the 11th century, Mapungubwe culture had shifted from the complex cattle pattern where each settlement featured a large cattle kraal in the centre to something very different. The spatial expression of statues and greater social distance between elite and commoner was expressed through the trade and storage of valuable products that replaced cattle as items regarded as the most important. While ivory had been traded for hundreds of years, Gold became extremely important to the Mapungubwe people. Gold-plated rhino statuettes, a bowl and a scepter had been found in the grave of what we think was a royal cemetery on the Mapungubwe main settlement hilltop. In more modern Shona ethnography, the black rhino is a symbol of political power and leadership, so there is some speculation that the golden rhino found in the grave pointed to an important burial site. These royal burial sites are also smothered in something else, thousands of gold and glass trade beads. In contrast, down below in the flatland, that's below the Royal Hill, commoners' graves had no gold whatsoever. We also know from archaeological finds that exotic trade items like beads, as well as craft activities such as metallurgy and ivory carving were controlled by elites. The spatial distance between these elites on the hill and commoners down below grew around this period, whereas before the large central royal enclosure was surrounded by commoners, huts and buildings. At the base of Mapungubwe Hill, commoner households were still being laid out according to the central cattle pattern which we heard about last week. This is a clear example of class differentiation, and there's not too much to debate about what happened historically. Furthermore, the geographical breadth of this empire was significant with the presence of Mapungubwe ceramics and pottery found in eastern Botswana, and south towards the Sotansberg mountain range, as well as deep into Zimbabwe to the northwest. In the eastern Botswana area, what had happened by the 11th century was the Zizo communities had regrouped and morphed into the Tutsui tradition, where farmers developed much shallower political hierarchies. These people were rooted in livestock management and traded deep into the Kalahari hinterland through to the Okavango in northwestern Botswana. They interacted with the pastoralist and hunter-gatherer peoples in the region. What is really fascinating is the emergence of a complex system of food production on a large scale, certainly larger than we unearthed previously. The day-to-day -day needs of a people gathered around the Royal Hill was based on an ability to produce food for storage and not just for immediate consumption, but on a large scale. The area today would not really be able to sustain large-scale grain production. The location of elite and commoner settlements here throughout the 10th to the 13th centuries 
shed light on how the scale of agricultural production was achieved. It's all about geography, of course. Besides finding a place where water flows, these people also set up their settlements near alluvial gold that was being washed down the rivers, draining the gold-rich geology of the Zimbabwe Plateau to the north. So these folks were looking out across a landscape that had gold and an extensive floodplain close to the Limpopo River, just upstream from the junction with the Shashi River. Access to a relatively large volume of water was crucial, and the annual floodwaters were used to plant and harvest large fields of grain. The predictable production was also bolstered by the nutritional rejuvenation of the floodplain soils, a rather delicate balance, as those who lived along the Nile know. We also know that by the end of the Mapungubwe period, this balance was going out of sync as a downturn in the amount of rainfall by the end of the 13th century impacted the ability of these people to feed themselves in large numbers. Look, there's quite a bit of debate about this, with suggestions that right at the end of the Mapungubwe period, rainfall actually rose, but the overall analysis is that the variation in volume must have contributed to its demise in a more general sense. These people dominated the trade patterns of southern Africa to the east coast for around 200 years. But by the 1300s, Great Zimbabwe to the northeast began to grow in size and importance. And this new state was Shona speaking by now, and it began what is known as the second phase of the Zimbabwe tradition. The location of Great Zimbabwe is on a south-facing slope of the Zimbabwean plateau, and it gets more rain than the Mapungubwe area. Great Zimbabwe has another advantage over the lowlands further west. It's closer to the important trading ports of the Indian Ocean. Whatever the main motivation, the reality is there was a cultural continuity between Mapungubwe and Great Zimbabwe, although in the latter it appears in the archaeological record in a monumental scale. While Great Zimbabwe began to emerge from the southern slopes, Mapungubwe people continued living on the hilltop and some moved even further south to the Sotbansberg region. We must be cautious, however. While Mapungubwe was large and imposing compared with what went before and a great achievement, it's not significant enough to be a yardstick against which all Southern African farming peoples should be measured. There is much romantic frothing from popular histories as well as contemporary politicians about this part of South Africa, which has warped our modern conversation to some extent. It is important, but it's not as important as what was to follow, if you like. As I mentioned last episode, from around 1,000 years before the present, a distinct identity begins emerging that we can track through ethnography and oral history to the present. Combine this with the continuing trade to the southeast African coastline, and particularly the Europeans who arrived from the 1500s, what Simon Hall calls the historical anonymity that veils much of the first millennium starts to slip. It is now that we can begin tracing the origin of the Sututswana and Nguni speakers. Cultural remains of people who are regarded as those of ancestral Nguni speakers first appear around 1100 AD along the coastal regions of KwaZulu-Natal, while Sutu and Swana speakers are linked to bushveld habitats north and south of the Sotpansberg from around 1300 AD. As with our other links, it's all about pottery, ceramics if you like, and cultural items. Starting 1000 years ago, we begin tracking these people as they migrate over the land, leaving their homesteads to be covered by hundreds of years of South African weathering, only to be unearthed by some lucky person in the 20th or 21st century. So standing back for a moment and considering our journey so far, in our first few episodes we heard about the geological change, then climate shifts, then we covered the earliest known hunter-gatherer people 
who left their mark on the land over 100,000 years. The earliest farmers migrated to southern Africa around 2,000 years ago. Then by 500 years ago, pastoralists could be found in the Karoo with their sheep and dogs. Cattle begin arriving around 500 AD and pastoralists dominate the west of the country with its arid conditions suited to livestock. But these people did not work iron like those in the east, the wetter summer rainfall areas. By 900 AD, the central region is trading with East African ports, which leads to larger empires, which can be found by 900 through to 1300 AD. It is now that the more modern people of South Africa can be identified more precisely, the Nguni, the Sutu, the Tswana. So let's take a good look at what happened next. As I said, cultural remains of people who are most likely to be Nguni speakers first appear in the archaeological record around 1100 AD along the KwaZulu-Natal coast, while Sutu and Swana speakers are traced in the Bushveld habitats, and that's north and south of the Sotbansberg, from around 1300 AD. This we know from ceramics and other cultural treasures embedded in graves, as well as the settlement style itself unearthed by archaeologists. So, from the start of the second millennium to today, these identities became even more recognizable as the archaeological chronology overlaps with both oral and written records. As you can probably guess, the earliest sites linked to ancestral Sutu and Swana people dating to the early 14th century can be found in the Limpopo province of modern South Africa. By the 15th century, these people expanded south into northwest province of today and into the eastern and southeastern Botswana regions. In later podcasts, I'll explain how these people pushed through into the high-felt grasslands of KwaZulu-Natal, the highlands, and the eastern Free State, and that was by the 1600s as the Dutch under Jan van Riebeck set up their first Cape refueling station. Standing back once more, and looking from above, so to speak, it's clear that the Sutu and Swana people populated South Africa from north to south. But the Nguni people, on the other hand, are a different kettle of fish. We know enough to say there is no continuous record of settlements and homesteads between the early farmer phase of what's known as the Inchikani and those pioneer Nguni folks. What this means, in a nutshell, is that although there were ancient people who farmed in KwaZulu-Natal, they were not the same as the new arrivals who spoke a form of early Zulu and eventually Isitkoza. However, it does mean that the origins of both the Sututswana and Nguni speakers appear to be broadly related. The impetus that was behind the movement must have come from the north of the Limpopo. Here is a fascinating aside. There are links between the early Nguni pottery and 13th century pottery that has been found at a place called Ivuna in Tanzania. There's another connection between people. There are similarities linguistically between both Nguni and Sututswana languages and East African languages. For example, kinship terminology such as the practice of Hlonipa or respect shown by a married woman for her husband's patrilineal family is one way they avoid words associated with the patrilineal family itself. And the importance of cattle over agriculture and a material culture that follows East African patterns, for example, beehive houses. Much later, by the 19th century, there would be more contact and migrations that tied these two regions together. The evidence is pretty overwhelming that the origins of both the Nguni and Sututswana speakers of South Africa today are to be found in East Africa. The frustrating thing is we just don't know why they began moving south from the areas as far north as Lake Malawi, except because of what is known as fission between or within kin groups. 
Koi farmers as well as Dutch settlers also followed a form of fission, which means sons and powerful men leave the homestead to set up their own settlements away from their parents. They move into virgin territory at times, at others they would bump into existing ancient farmers and co-opt them or fold them into the new culture. Once they were established in South Africa, distinctive Sututswana settlements appear between the 14th and 15th centuries, spreading south. These Sutu and Swana were actually part of a new frontier farming community, as strange as that may sound to the modern ear. There is not a great deal of oral history about the first century or two of this intermingling where the ancient first farmers were overtaken by these Sutu and Swana. There is a subtle incorporation of some early Iron Age decorations into the style of the Sutu Tswana pottery, and in eastern Botswana we know they shared the landscape at first. The 15th century was a busy time, and not just for the Sutu Tswana and Nguni peoples beginning to spread around southern Africa. Further afield in Europe, moves were afoot that would have a cataclysmic effect on global history. It was the time of Portuguese and Spanish expansion soon thereafter to be followed by the Dutch, the French and the English. On the third day of February 1488, herdsmen on the shore of Mossel Bay of South Africa underwent an extraordinary and unprecedented experience. Mossel means muscle. The coast was a veritable treasure trove of that all-important seafood which had sustained ancient peoples for tens of thousands of years. It's fitting, I think, that the seafarers from Europe would come across the original people of South Africa at a bay named after hunter-gatherer's basic food source, don't you? The sea, which was always unpredictable and dangerous, had produced huge objects that morning, bigger than anything the herders had seen before, and humans were emerging from these structures, these ships. The men rowed their boats to the shore and herders withdrew their cattle to a safe distance to observe what happened next. After a short while, the observers realized that the men were filling containers with water from the river that flowed into the sea at the bay, so the herders advanced to test who these people were. A few stones were thrown, some hit the strange men, one picked up an odd-shaped weapon, which was actually a crossbow, to fire back. The herders were coy and the strange ones were Portuguese. The sailors were the crews of Bartolomeu Dias, who had made his way down the Atlantic seeking the Pacific Ocean and the route to the Spice Islands of the East. They were not the first so far south. Diogo Cao was a Portuguese explorer and one of the most notable navigators of the Age of Discovery. He made two voyages sailing along the west coast of Africa in the 1480s, exploring the Congo River and the coast of Angola and Namibia, all the way down to Balfour's Bay. And yet... Europeans, as we have seen, were relative latecomers to the southeastern seaboard of Africa. So, in 1488, Bartolomeu Dias had anchored in Mossel Bay, which he immediately named Bahia das Vaqueros because of the herds of cattle they spotted in great numbers on the land, being herded by what they called yellow-skinned people we know as the Khoi. Dias would eventually sail 300 miles further northeast up the coast to Cape Padroni, the eastern tip of Algoa Bay. That is present-day Port Elizabeth, or should I say its new name, Kabacha. This is where he came across other people, the Isikosa, and saw that they were different, that they weren't the same as the Khoi. And so the story of South Africa, and so the story of South Africa, is one of changing names and migrating people, like its changing landscapes and the owners of that landscape. We do not know what the Khoi called Mossel Bay when Diaz called it Bahia dos Baqueros, but after settlers arrived from the Netherlands and England, the name changed. And so, 
it's changed again. That plays havoc with Google Maps these days, but bear with me. What's in a name after all except dominant culture of the moment? Perhaps in a generation it will receive another name, although all this revisionism costs money as signs are reprinted and erected by the dominant culture. Humans are the strangest of the mammals. We mark territories like a pack of wolves, and each new pack marks the land with a spray of words on a tree. And as with wolves, that spray symbolizes the ownership or control of the landscape, warning competitors that a new pack is in control. Diaz planted another stone pillar at Algoa Bay, as they had done along the coastline of southern Africa in 1488. They weren't the first Portuguese, but they were the first Europeans to travel as far northeast around the tip of Africa. Dios, Diaz turned around and headed home, satisfied he'd found the route to the Spice Islands. It was only on his return trip that he hugged the coastline and actually passed around False Bay and that most symbolic of points in southern Africa for all of us, Cape Point. That sharp point sticks out of a map below Cape Town which is often and mistakenly referred to as the southernmost tip of Africa. Of course, that is wrong. The southernmost tip is actually Cape Agulhas, but standing at Cape Point and turning to look straight north gives most people a thrill. You are literally turning to face one of the world's largest continents, a puny pinprick of a person at the very base of our beloved and infuriatingly convoluted continent with its southern underbelly covered with hundreds of thousands of years of human evolution. Thus, it is time to end this week's podcast. Next week, We'll hear more about these Portuguese expeditions and the stories these sailors told of the people they were meeting, the Esitosa, the Koi and the San. As you'll hear, some of the earliest Portuguese sailors end up shipwrecked and living amongst the Esitosa and the Koi, marrying locals and creating a whole new generation of people who call themselves African. Please head off to desmondlatham.blog for a few notes and maps of this episode 6 and rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. Each rating increases the chances of folks finding the story and perhaps spreading the word. You can also contact me directly on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until we meet again, 